1: Welcome to the Dunked On Basketball Podcast. I am Danny Rue, your partial host. Another episode, kind of like the last one we did that came out on Sunday afternoon, where this is a mix of a podcast that Nate and I did, plus news with Dan Feldman. The news comes first, talked about Daniel House's situation, Isaiah Thomas, the Russell Westbrook, Utah Jazz fan incident, and caught up on injuries and everything else. And then Nate and I talk at length on a topic that we have been asked to do a lot, and that is the worst contracts in the NBA. And so we start out by going through all the teams and kind of work through some candidates and some not candidates. And then we each rank our top fives. So you can go through it. Lots, of, lots and lots of material there. And we will be back in our normal fashion starting on Sunday night slash Monday morning, depending on when you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks for having me again.
1: I The place that I want to start is probably not the place that that some others would start of what's happened since the last time you and I recorded on this, which was Sunday, and that is with the Daniel House news. And so basically what happened here, the the Cliff Notes version, is that House had actually been on an NBA contract earlier in the season. He moved down to a two-way so that they could sign Gary Clark. And then when House was getting towards the end of his number of NBA days on the two-way contract, they ran, the two sides ran into a problem because the Rockets wanted to sign House to a longer-term deal with, at the minimum, you know, not surprisingly, maybe something along the lines of the Hinky special, which is a term I came up with for contracts that run a long time and are basically all minimum and all minimally guaranteed. So something like that, and House basically said, no, because those that would require a negotiation. And so the, it looks like the Rockets were kind of positioning things. And eventually now, you know, close enough that he will be playoff eligible. House is converted, which they can do unilaterally, which means that he will be a restricted free agent in the summer of 2019 with the qualifying offer being an NBA contract rather than a two-way contract, which is what it is when a two-way contract expires.
2: And good for him for for standing up for what he wants. I I think the real interesting thing we're finding out about two-way contracts is how much of a tough position they put players in as they end. You lose a lot of leverage to the team as soon as you sign it. Uh, Because if you play well and it ends, then you're still kind of stuck. And so... You know, I am all for players being as aggressive as they can at that point as you near the expiration of it to try and get what you want because you already don't have much leverage.
1: Right, and I mean, I think the best example of that we've seen so far is Ty Wallace. I mean, Wallace had a, a nice year. You know, he's, he's underperformed relative to my own expectations for him this season, but he it took him a while to get anything. What he got was a, you know, a pretty weak offer from... New Orleans that I think it surprised all of us that the Clippers ended up matching and having the leverage of a two-way qualifying offer that's such a low bar for any team that you can basically just wait out the offseason and then you can evaluate it on its own merits and if the as long as the player doesn't do enough to move the needle where they're an early part of the bidding process it's even easier like that's what happened for the Clippers is they had all their other business done and while they had some thorny stuff to deal with all the thorns were gone at that point and the rockets could be in a similar boat and house i believe he's from houston i know that he grew up a rockets fan so it's not the situation where he's dying to get out of there or something i think he's just dying to make his money
2: yeah and he should i mean he is you know he bounced around a little bit with the wizards and Suns, and this is his opportunity he's playing well this season he's shooting well from outside he's a wing every everybody needs more wings uh and you know the I think his, you can see his value in the fact that the Rockets converted him. They didn't have to do that. They could have let him languish in the, in the minor leagues and then come into the offseason on that two-way qualifying offer, but they clearly view him as somebody that they want on their team the rest of the season that 's a strong indication of his
1: value along those lines. remember that the Rockets have, like every other team have a finite number of roster spots they 're dancing very very close to the luxury tax and they could have had some you know I, they could have had somebody else and they chose Daniel house to use that roster spot over whoever else you want to talk about so that is an important statement as well for not only for them but theoretically for teams. As a restricted free agent, you know, an offer sheet type of guy. And my belief is that wings are the group that teams should make their exception about being reluctant on, you know, offer sheets, because the whole idea of, yeah, you're tying up your space and all this kind of stuff, but it's wings are so scarce that you can do that. I'm not saying specifically that Daniel House is that wing, because I would need to evaluate him more to make us before making a big statement like that. But it only takes a couple of teams. And, you know, you, I, I hope that everybody, everybody gets their money, because especially somebody who has gone through the trials that he has trying to make it in the league, I, I feel sympathetic for those type of guys. I mean, Nate and I, the first NBA cast we did of the G League, was a, was a game that Daniel House was playing in as a part of the Rio Grande Valley Vipers. And so, you know, I, I have additional connection there. But yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes. We'll see, see if he can, I mean, I'm guessing that this also ties in that he will probably, I mean, it will happen probably after most people listen. This will happen at record after most people listen to it. But if he plays against the Warriors, I mean, that game is going to be a little disjointed with Kevin Durant out due to an ankle sprain. But if House, you know, can show that he belongs, can fit in with their system in that game, that will go a long way to saying, hey, this guy can be a part of our rotation or won't be a part of our rotation.
2: Do you think there's, what do you think the chances that What qualifying offer he would be getting next offseason just isn't that important because he's elevated himself as a player to the point that, that, yeah, I mean, the qualifying offer always matters, but that it's likely enough he'll be getting an offer sheet or just a direct contract with the Rockets that's bigger than the offer sheet anyway
1: the most likely outcome to me was was that he was going to get an NBA contract like if let's say he had gone through the offseason you know the Ty wall situation happened he goes into the offseason with that offer but you know there's a little bit less shine you know you getting you you don't get pulled up you don't get the experience of being on the playoffs with this Rockets team so I think it was still the more likely outcome that he would have gotten an NBA contract but I do think this helps it a little bit
2: yeah I agree with that
1: I mentioned this just now but Kevin Durant left the the game that the Warriors eventually lost to Phoenix with a, they're calling it a right ankle contusion, and he will miss the Rockets game. His status is uncertain for their game in Oklahoma City, which is on Saturday. And it's unfortunate this now means that all four Warriors-Rockets games this regular season will have had a significant absence. I don't need to go through all four of them, just know that they exist. And these games are far more important for the Rockets and Thunder, respectively, than they are for the Warriors, just because the Warriors still have a pretty good leg up for the number one seed in the Western Conference. But it is disappointing to not get those teams at full strength.
2: Sure. Hopefully we get that in a playoff series, because I really do think as the Rockets come together they might be the best challenger to the Warriors in the West. Now, I don't think the, the Rockets are as good as they were last year, but I think the Warriors might not be quite as good as they were last year either. And so I would like to see that in a playoff series. And I'm more hopeful on that than I am bemoaning that, oh, this one regular season matchup isn't going to have all the the talent available.
1: Right. And there's also a chance that if the Rockets win this game that it makes it more likely that they get into the 2-3 and theoretically in that case that means that they would have to go through an extra series theoretically to face the Warriors, but they would also that would theoretically be the Western Conference Finals. So that would be pretty exciting. So we'll we'll see where it goes. For me the the next big piece of news uh, is from Nick Cosmeter, who had the reporting late on Tuesday night that Michael Malone talked to Isaiah Thomas before their win over the Minnesota Timberwolves to tell him that they were removing Isaiah Thomas from the rotation and that it was a hard decision, but it was one that he had to make and that the plan is to do this. It's not just like a one game thing. Oh, you're not you're not in the rotation night. It's that he's not in moving forward. This is absolutely the right decision. It is an exceedingly tough one because of what Isaiah Thomas's history is, but he was not helping the Nuggets, and the Nuggets have lofty aspirations.
2: Monte Morris made this the right easy decision because he, the Flint, Michigan native has played so well off the bench. I mean, he has just been excellent as the backup point guard. The, the Nuggets, without Monte Morris, maybe they would have been in a position where, no, you don't want to be playing Isaiah Thomas. He's not really ready to, to go. As he's coming back from this injury. But you feel like you have to because you have no other good option. The Nuggets have a great option in their backup point guard. You can't really push Monte Morris to the side in a season where you're trying to win when you're ready to win, where you're good enough to win right now to aid Isaiah is development, or I don't know if development's the right word, uh, his growth back in into hitting his peak form or anywhere toward that. It's sad for Isaiah Thomas. It's unfortunate. The timing of his injury in relation to his contract, everything he's been through, It's It's tough on him, uh, but the Nuggets are in the business of winning, and Isaiah Thomas isn't ready to help them do
1: that. I'm happy you focused on on Morris as being the impetus for this because he is. And, I mean, we saw Morris fade a little bit more into the limelight when Thomas was out there on the floor. And that was not a good thing for the Denver Nuggets because Morris was playing significantly better than Thomas. And they have all these other bench options. If they needed another, just another capable body, we've seen teams work with two small guards. I mean, Dallas had the Energizer Bunny lineup last year with three small guards (laughs) on their second unit. But Isaiah Thomas wasn 't playing well enough, and the Nuggets have other options so i I, I think that their ideal you know usually teams run an eight or a nine player primary rotation in the playoffs. The nuggets' best version of that did not include Isaiah Thomas, so getting those ducks in a row ahead of time is a very good thing
2: yeah it's it, it, I can 't say again it, it's just so unfortunate for Isaiah Thomas that oh, yeah. the situation like it stinks nobody should is happy about this. But it is the situation. I mean, he's a competitor. I think he understands that on a certain level that the, the team's trying to win, and he's not there. Um, I don't. What gets tough for him is I don't know how he shows before free agency this summer that he is there, that he is back, that that his hip and his uh, quickness and all those things are are back. To a level where he can be a good NBA contributor.
1: And uh, apologies if I got this wrong. I think I remember from Sam Amick's piece earlier in the week, which you are over been over the weekend that he wrote for the Athletic. He was talking about kind of the puzzle pieces for various teams, and he was talking about I believe there was something in there about how Isaiah like basically never wanted to come off the bench again. Like that was just kind of he thought he had earned that from Boston, and he had until he got hurt. And then you just have to recalibrate all this stuff, and it's going to be extremely hard to figure out where this goes. I think he might end up having to do maybe more workouts, more proof that he's healthier, because the Isaiah Thomas that we're seeing so far this year is going to have a narrow group of teams that decide he's worth he's worth the risk, especially if you if you have to sign another backup point guard. You know, if you have to sign another guy in case Isaiah's not there, that's a lot of roster spots to throw at a single position.
2: Right. I mean, the season with the Nuggets was supposed to be Isaiah Thomas's chance to to show that he was back, and he hasn't really had that opportunity It in part because he signed with a team that I don't think he knew it, or I don't think really many people knew it at the time, already had a really good backup point guard. If if Isaiah Thomas were playing right now for a team that didn't have such a good backup point guard, that team, especially if they were – out of the playoff race, but maybe even if they were in the playoff race, might just be saying, okay, well, we got to go through these growing pains with him and and hope he finds his groove because that's our best option. The Nuggets don't have to do that. So it it kind of worked out poorly that the Nuggets were the team he signed with. I'm not sure what other options he had, and I think it made sense at the time reuniting with with Michael Malone and a team that seemed to believe in him more than others, but it just didn't work out well.
1: A couple of quick kind of injury bullet points. Jason Tatum, Missed the Clippers game due to right shoulder soreness. Can't say that five times fast. And we'll we'll just see where that that goes. Tatum is extremely important to what the Celtics are doing, but there's a month until the playoffs, so I'm assuming they'll be cautious with him. Kevin Love got another DNP rest. The only reason that's notable is that he talked when he came back about how he wanted to play in every game. It's the right decision to not play him in every game, but we'll just kind of keep an eye on that. They were still close late against the Sixers. And also on the DNP rest front, Danilo Gallinari got a DNP rest in the Clippers' loss to Portland. That was a game that was kind of close early in the fourth quarter, and then CJ McCollum went absolutely insane and pulled away. The That's the bad news is like, hey, one of your, your best player right now on a team that's been this amazing success story has a DNP rest in an I- important game.
2: Wait, I misheard you. I I didn't think you said that Montrezl Harrell got a DMP rest.
1: Now, now, No, I mean, Harrell's having a great year. He's seriously contender for six man, but Gallo is their best player, at least in my opinion. Um, and but but the good thing for the the Clippers is that this is Gallinari's first game off since February fifth. So I mean, if you can play, if he can play a straight month, especially because there are no back to backs in the playoffs, if he can play a straight month then you'll take that. And so it's, it, I, I mean, it's, I put a little pin in it just because that's what I do, but <laughs> I'm, and it's Gallinari who's, I mean, the issue with him was always, can he stay healthy? It was never, easy good when he is healthy? Because he is, but we'll just have to, yeah, I mean, I mean, as long as it's a one-time thing, I'm totally cool with it, even though he might've made the difference in that game.
2: Yeah. I, I kind of think Gallo actually is the Clippers best player. I, I, I think Montrezl Harrell is handling his role the best of anybody on the Clippers, but Gallo has such a bigger role, so it can be tough to compare those two, but I I do tend to think it's Gallo.
1: In Chicago, Zach Levine has a right patellar tendon strain. We don't have a specific timeline here. Jim Boylan said that he doesn't have a return date in mind, but Boylan is optimistic that Levine will play again this season. Chicago is in this unusual place because they've been playing really well, and they're going to have a good draft pick, but their success doesn't really really materially affected so much so as long as they're not you know causing further injury or anything like that getting Levine back is helpful for them I mean right now there are a couple games clear I like to look at the loss column for quote-unquote bad teams they are two games clear the Suns below them and then five games behind the Hawks in the loss column so they can win a bunch if they want to without affecting anything.
2: And they've had so many different players injured at different points this year. Otto Porter obviously just came over. Uh, so I think for this team especially, there is value in having their young core play together if Zach Levine is healthy enough to play.
1: Do you want to talk at all about the the piece that you I, I, you wrote something? For, I haven't sadly haven't read it yet for NBC about Otto Porter. You want to talk about it? You didn't read it
2: in the three minutes between when I hit published and when you called me. I'm.
1: Do you know that I need, tried hurt. to write it while I, I thought about reading it while we were recording? Thought, <laughs> but then I'm like, that's doing you a disservice in a different way.
2: <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, Otto Porter playing very well for the Bulls has studied a lot of things for the Bulls. The Bulls were so desperate for any small forward. I mean, they had early in the year they had Jabari Parker there, who you know he's more of a power forward. He was miscast. Uh Justin Holiday was good, but then once they traded him, they were just relying on on so many undersized wings trying to be that bigger wing. So just any decent small forward was gonna solidify things for the Bulls. Otto Porter's much more than decent. I've always really liked his game. I think he complements good players very well. The Bulls don't necessarily have that right now, and Otto Porter showing uh, some wider range in his game, that he can do a little more himself. I'm not sure that's the best role for him long term, but I do think it's the right role for him on the Bulls. I do think that's good for his development. He can do it at times. He's getting better at it as he does it, and you can read my piece at NBC Sports for more details on all those things. And the the interesting fact that I, I used to pitch it a little bit is uh, Otto Porter has the highest salary in Bulls history besides Michael Jordan. That's kind of where he's at with this team and what that means.
1: Wow, that that is pretty striking. And I think Porter is a good object lesson, something that also was true with John Collins at points this season, of the importance of having somebody that can do positive things at a specific position. You know, like the difference of wins over replacement even for an imperfect player. And Porter's been playing really really well. I'm not I don't mean this to criticize Otto Porter at all, but the difference between him and what they had at the 3 is massive and that can help bring a team from rough to engaging and competent you know like that that it really can be that type of difference and i think porter and john collins have both been that guy i talked about this before with brooklyn's point guards a couple of years ago now they have an embarrassment of riches at that position but those sorts of just glaring deficiencies can really bring a team down
2: yeah i think it's more true at point guard um and it, you know it is it still matters at small for it. I think it matters more at point guard. And I think everything you were saying about the net at that time was spot on. And what was going on in Chicago was just a lesser version of it, but still a version of it.
1: Speaking of teams with point guard injuries, the Utah Jazz—they're—they're <laughs> they're getting. It's funny their point guards are almost funny in in the abstract sense, not in the actual sense. That their point guards seem to always get hurt at the same time. So they had Neto, XM and and Rubio were all out. Now XM returned on Monday. Rubio and Neto should be back on Wednesday. Donovan Mitchell has done, you know, he's really blossomed in their collective absence, but also the idea of 48 good minutes at the position, all these other things. They had tried, I had watched one game when Grayson Allen was flailing. They were actually going to, having some pretty good success with zero point guard lineups, just like nobody who you would consider that. And they were using Ingles to handle on a couple, and their system can do some of the heavy lifting there too. But the Jazz, I, I have an operating theory that they've had a couple of disappointing losses, over the last two weeks that having a lack of point guard play was probably a part of that. So now they still have an, an incredibly soft schedule and strong incentives to p- do as well as they can to get as good of a seat as they can, considering where the West is right now.
2: Right. They've slipped all the way to, to eighth, which is pretty surprising. Um, this is a team I believe have believed in a lot, especially going into the season and with their soft schedule. I do expect them to climb but i do think that you know you got to get out of the eighth you don't want to be playing the warriors in the first round and then i think after that it is a lot more balanced in the west two through i was gonna say eight but maybe even nine obviously a ninth team won't be in there but as long as you get out of eighth you're okay uh but do you, do you think the jazz still have the potential to to get home court advantage in the first round to get all the way up into the top four
1: I do. They have this incredibly soft schedule right now. So right now the line would be uh, the Thunder and Blazers have 26 losses. The Jazz right now have 29. So they have to basically play three games better with about 15 to go. That's tough. Basically, that means they have to win out or close. But when you and and the other part of Utah's schedule that's striking is they have a lot of road games left. This is not a circumstance where a team has like all these soft teams at home. They just have a lot of soft games that are that are in various places. So. How much Minnesota's trying, how much Chicago's trying, you know, will Levine be back? They play in a couple weeks, and then they play Denver and the Clippers on the last two games, the last two days of the season, and the last two games of the season. So I don't expect that they will, but it is possible. And Utah has, you know, absent team quality, Utah has the second strongest home court advantage in the league behind the Denver Nuggets due to being at the second highest altitude in the league behind the Denver Nuggets.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I agree with all that. I don't think they're going to get there, but I do think that's got to be the goal uh, as because it's possible.
1: One that's concerning for me because of his prior history, Rodney Hood has now missed four straight games due to a hip issue. If those who remember he had that gigantic game a week and a half ago where he had 20, I think he had 21 in the fourth quarter against the Charlotte Hornets. And Hood, you know, he's missed time at various moments in his career. The, the Blazers can use him. He is, you know, he's coming off the bench, but he's playing valuable minutes for them off the bench. So we'll just have to see. I mean, they if they still won their last game. They've, they've still done okay. But, I mean, Hood's been a key part of this. And anything that gives teams pause in terms of his free agent value, because remember, when Hood... Did declined to veto the move from Cleveland to Portland, which was a good decision for him overall. He lost his bird rights as a port of that, and so now he just has non-bird with the the Blazers.
2: Yeah, I don't think the bird rights were going to matter much anyway. I didn't see him returning to the Cavaliers. Players who take their qualifying offer almost never return to the same team the next season. I think Spencer Hawes, with the 76ers way back when, was the only player ever to take his qualifying offer and return to the same team the next year.
1: Right. And th- this is a little bit different because he didn't decline the qualifying offer with or he d- he didn't sign the qualifying offer with Portland, but I mean it's the same, same basic kind of structural stuff is in
2: Right. I I just mean the fact that he uh didn't veto the trade to Portland. I you know, I don't think he really lost my. He lost Yeah, he didn't he didn't lose the ability the to sign a big
1: money lose. deal with Cleveland because Cleveland wouldn't have signed him to it. Exactly. Yeah, that's a fair point. In Toronto slash Cleveland, Serge Ibaka and Marquise Chris had an altercation. I think you're probably more familiar with what happened than I am. Partially, probably because of his previous experience in, let's call them altercations, <laughs> Ibaka got, and because he was the aggressor in this one, Ibaka got three games, Marquis Chris got one. And that, you know, obviously Ibaka misses a couple of games, but also that does reduce Toronto's luxury tax bill over the course of the season because league suspensions count. You know that the the game checks they miss reduces the luxury tax bill.
2: I wonder whether the Raptors owners they'll never admit this, obviously, but whether they'd prefer that Ibaka miss these three games and they save what is it about half a million or so. You know, because the the reason you pay a Baca so much is to get him on the team, right? The the Raptors are headed where they're headed for playoff seating pretty much anyway. And so once once you've got him on the roster, you're not going to lose him. If you can save this money, if you're a little shorthanded for a few games, maybe it's worth it. Now, obviously, I don't think they actually want him to go start fights and get suspended. And they're not promoting that by any means. But once it happens... They might prefer that it happened to that it didn't.
1: You saying that reminded me of, I think this was a couple of years ago. I I think if memory serves, it was DeMarcus Cousins on the Pelicans that I was wondering if he could get suspended enough to like get them under the luxury tax. Like there was a circumstance like that. I can <laughs> it was a player who had a long history of suspensions on a team that was kind of close to the margin. And I, I wondered about that and I, I think I did the math and the answer was no, but well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think this is going to be anything that has any lingering impact and, with a Ibaka, though, I mean, it, it is worth noting that if, you know, tensions get high in the playoffs, a player's prior history does matter in terms of league punishment. And so that could end up rearing its head. And that's I don't think it's going to be much different because of this ish- issue. But I do think it's a reminder that it's there.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, even more directly, Baca runs hot sometimes. That's part of mm-hmm. who he is as a player, and this is a reminder that that could be an issue for the Raptors in the playoffs. So there's a lot of good that comes with that, right? He plays hard, and he he brings intensity, and there's a lot of good, but sometimes there are negatives, and this is just a reminder of that.
1: Yeah, and that's another benefit of having Marcus now is that if Ibaka has to miss a game or, you know, whether that's due to injury or something like this, that they have more replacements. They could of course, go to Siakam at center more as well, depending on how many wings they have healthy at a given point. Speaking of healthy wings, Damari Carroll is going to miss Wednesday's game against Oklahoma City due to a hyperextended knee. We have not heard about Travion Graham. He had back soreness that caused him to miss Brooklyn's win over Detroit on Monday. So, I mean... I. I'm guessing if Graham, if it was more discretionary, that maybe he'll be back, but we'll have to hear on that. And then in, in Charlotte, Nicola Batum was a late scratch on Monday due to a right eye abrasion. And that became a bigger deal because they had so many other guys out. We talked about MKG's knee sprain the last time we did a newser, but also Cody Zeller missed that game due to left knee soreness. And that is concerning because the left knee is the one that he had surgery on back in the 17, 18 season.
2: It's getting late fast for the Hornets.
1: Yeah, it really is. I mean, we, we have we're in this circumstance right now as as we record this where there are seven teams in the eastern conference with a, a record over 500 pistons and nets or a couple games over respectively and then there's that race for the for the 8th spot which i mean you could talk about how desirable that is to to get in there and just get run by the bucks But, I mean, all of those teams, the problem is, yeah, okay, the the four teams that they're going against aren't super good, but you have to be better than all four of them. You have to be better than the three others in order to make it in.
2: Yeah. I mean, the the Bucks are, or I'm sorry, the uh, Hornets are definitely still in it. But as, as their personnel dwindles, as they are just barely hanging on into this race, it gets tough.
1: The Bucks are in it as well. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of teams in that race, uh, Josh Richardson is questionable for. Miami's game on Wednesday, due to against Detroit, due to right hamstring soreness. Hamstrings are tricky, and Miami, you know, that you have these competing things. And I think Spo and their medical staff will do a good job with this. But it's so hard when you have a month left in the season. Josh Richardson is a very important player for what they do. That you want to have, you want to have your players out there. But the harder you push them, the more likely you are to miss them for a longer period of time.
2: I do think the Heat want to make the playoffs. I think that's absolutely a priority. But it is nice that they do have the fallback of, if they miss the playoffs, I believe that would put them in position to avoid paying the luxury tax.
1: I don't have the firm numbers on that, but you might be right. Well,
2: I, I I'm, th- I'm just saying that because Albert Namad has, has written it. Um, I have not run through the, the exact numbers yeah. on the bonuses, but I believe Kali Linick has a bonus related to making the Heat making the playoffs. And if they don't, I, I think there are other things tied into it, too, so I don't think that would make it a lock. But I think that's the way it's trending, that that the Heat will pay the luxury tax if they make the playoffs, will not if they miss the playoffs.
1: That that reminds me. It's worth mentioning that I'm so happy the team that is the closest and had to do the most ridiculous stuff to pass to like be around the luxury tax to possibly get under it is the team that has a singular like sour cap expert. Albert does the whole league, but he cares more about the Heat, and so it's it's this great confluence of person who knows this stuff really well and cares about it a lot and has you know can can piece it all together for the team where it matters most. I've enjoyed that a lot.
2: Yes, absolutely. Me too.
1: Jimmy Butler got a DNP rest against Cleveland. They still won the game that was closer than I expected, and so that the reason to me that was significant is because it was another game that ph- that Philly played without their full starting five. You know they had they've had various injuries. Joel Embiid missed a bunch time, and that game was ugly until Embiid had a couple of awesome plays late. They're going to need time to figure this out, and hopefully they can stay healthier to get there. I mean Philly is still jockeying for positioning, but they're going to need their guys healthy at su- at some point.
2: Yeah, I mean, and if you're going to re-sign Jimmy Butler, you're going to need him healthy over the long term, too. He's somebody that you do need to be caref- careful with, with the injuries he's had and all the mileage on him.
1: Yeah, and he had had a foot issue late in that game on Sunday, so that also might have been a part of it. You know, it was listed as a DNP rest, but maybe they wanted to make, make sure that was okay. And teams should do that, especially when they're playing against a less competitive opponent, even if that team gives them a game, which the Cavs did. In Minnesota, Jeff Teague, Andrew Wiggins, and Derek Rose all missed Tuesday's loss to the Nuggets, and Carl Anthony Towns had a knee scare over the weekend. That I think that injury occurred on Thursday or Friday. And but he so he missed one game, came back on Tuesday and dropped thirty four and ten. So great to see him back out there. I mean, it's the second health scare from Carl Anthony Towns, I believe, in the month of March.
2: Also the second of his career.
1: Yeah, that's true, because he had basically started every game in his career before that point. And so good to see Towns back out there. Good to see that this knee issue isn't going to affect him. And it's another confirmation, which is bad news for the teams that Minnesota's playing that we're kind of hoping maybe they would fall by the wayside, that they're, they're going to keep trying at whatever form that takes. And Towns has individual incentives, not that this is the whole reason why he's doing this, because if he makes All-NBA this season... Then he makes a boatload more money. I think you actually know the number pretty close to it, or did I, just I should totally. I, should, did I was that just totally unfair to you?
2: No, I mean I should know it. I just wrote a long article about it. Thirty-two million is the projection and difference over the next five years if he makes an all-NBA team. That's a lot of money. It and, is, and but but you know he gets a hundred percent of the benefit of the doubt of why he's playing because oh, he course. always plays. He always plays. Yeah, a- and you know, I don't think. There's a fine line, and it's tough to judge. He can be sometimes too passive, and that can look like he's not playing hard. But it seems like – I don't think that's what it is. I, I think sometimes it's in his, his nature as a player to be too passive, uh, but I don't think that's a lack of effort. Like he seems to – he plays every game for sure. That's verifiable. And in my assessment, he plays hard.
1: We'll end this with the story that has gotten the most attention over the last couple days. That is the situation between Russell Westbrook and, and a member of the Utah Jazz fan base that was sitting close to courtside during their game. And... What makes this hard for me to talk about like fully is that we don't know exactly what was said. I mean, there's been reference by both the Thunder players and the Jazz players to what happened, and we know the results, which is that Westbrook got a $25,000 fine and the fan got a lifetime ban from the Utah Jazz. So I do think that there is a worthwhile conversation to be had, whether whether you and I have it or somebody else about fan conduct and everything else like that. But I have trouble talking about this specific circumstance because we don't know what was said. And maybe it's my legal background where I'm like, hey, if we don't have the underlying facts, I can't talk about whether this was deserved or not.
2: Well, we don't know what was said here, but the Jazz investigated this and concluded that this guy should be banned. So I think that says something. I don't think we need to Put absolute faith in the Jazz's investigation that was absolutely done correctly. But I I think that's a very important piece of evidence that after they took the time to investigate this, their conclusion was this guy did cross a line, uh, a line he crossed so badly that he's got to be banned completely from the arena. um And there's also a video. Eric Woodyard of the Deseret News posted this, uh, a video from a prior game of a fan calling Russell Westbrook "boy" uh, as it looked like Westbrook was getting ready for the game. Uh, that is racial. That there. there on video you heard what the fan was saying and so i i think when westbrook talks about this he wasn't just talking about this incident although that is what he directly referred to but there's a history of things he's heard in utah and some of that is on video too and we can look at the whole scope of it
1: right and i will defer significantly to utah's investigation and we're going to run into this issue. I mean, just as as a people who cover a league, as a league, the league more broadly, where you have to, you know, some of it is going to take investigation after the fact, security, and you know, however, crowd management, however you want to term it. Yeah, it'd be great if if they could handle this immediately. First of all, it prevents situations from escalating. Then it's also a, a more direct punishment, all that kind of stuff. But I'm guessing the the kind of the long term end game here is that when these sorts of incidents happen it will take some time to investigate because you have lots of cameras you have lots of eyewitnesses and you can't really in the the heat of the game you can't really get all of that stuff together in time and yeah i mean that 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 is worse but i still think you know for that fan being able to be there for the rest of the game you know that's that's something but now they're now they're not they're not going to be back for the rest of it i also wonder how this is going to be enforced because it's very it's very hard to do that when you know obviously you could just have somebody hand you a ticket you could buy it you could buy it from a second hand source there are lots of different things you could do and so I don't know. I don't know exactly what the enforcement mechanisms are here, but I'm interested in how. The, I, but it's not like the first time a fan has ever been banned or something like that. I'm just interested intellectually, though. I'm, I'm I guess why a team would not be forthcoming with what that is, because then people could try to get around whatever <laughs> security measures they have. Yeah,
2: I've I've often wondered too how they enforce those bans. But there are bans all over. James Dolan bans how many people from Madison Square Garden? Uh, maybe maybe those bans aren't actually followed uh I would guess I don't know some of it is maybe there there's the threat of legal consequences because at, at that point a fan who's banned who comes to a game are they trespassing or you know maybe you can get away with it but maybe the deterrent is significant enough I'm not sure exactly well, I'll, I'll give you the they, one
1: that I would do how they do it I yeah. would I would definitely punish severely anybody who deliberately facilitated that you know kind of the aiding and abetting idea so no, if, but you, it's- if you knew if you knew not not like hey like like if it's your if it's your best friend and you buy them a ticket to the game and you know they're banned then you then you lose some time like you know those sort those sorts of things like that you know to the team not obviously you go to jail or something like that but I I would consider something like that because the, you know, you're trying to get leverage wherever you can, but you can't punish, you know, like a a ticket reseller because they sold a ticket to this guy because they can't, they can't do that in their ways with, you know, credit cards and all that kind of stuff to get around it.
2: uh, doing this during the game. I really do think the jazz in particular after this incident, but all teams need to assess what can they do during games? How can they handle this better during games? Uh, because this thing, if he if he crossed the line, which is what the Jazz themselves determined, he did it during the game. Is there really no way to, to suss that out during the game and eject him? Sometimes, definitely sometimes there's no way. But I tend to think that more often there is a way during the game if teams were more proactive about handling this correctly
1: they could also change the threshold and basically make it that if if it's uncertain that we're just going to remove you from the situation and yeah that might lead you know it's kind of the idea of is a false positive or a false negative worse and i would argue that if if somebody has done conduct sufficient that you think that this is a possibility that them missing even just the period of time to evaluate it that you know they kind of that remember this isn't a court of law this isn't a circumstance where you have to say oh is it is it you know, you want a policy that fans think is fair, but I think you could make that argument too. Of like, hey, we're trying to de-escalate the situation. We're gonna we're gonna do like if they, if people are like, hey, this is the person who's causing a problem. Maybe you you know hold them for a little bit and see if if things go away, or then maybe it was them.
2: Yeah, I mean, one thing I've often seen—I think teams do that—is they'll ask a fan to get up from from their seat and then talk to that person somewhere else, you know, down a corridor in a tunnel and talk to them and trying to evaluate the situation, hear what's going on, and it does get them out of out of that seat for a little bit. I've seen that in other buildings as a pretty common thing.
1: All I'm arguing for is like a penalty box or a bubble. That's some <laughs> some sort of like 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 a, a a sound like a glass case of emotion or something like that. That I think that's the way to do this, but we'll, we'll see. Two other quick pieces of OKC news before we, before we finish this segment, which has gone on longer than I expected. Um, Deontay Burton, he was converted from a two-way contract. The reporting has been into a multi-year contract that can take a couple different forms. It might be a little bit of looseness. I'm guessing they negotiated a new contract. And so that isn't technically a, you know, it's kind of a, on the hybrid of a conversion. But either way, Deontay Burton, multiple years, we'll see what the protection is. I'm guessing it will be lightly or non-guaranteed for the 1920 season. But good for him. You know, good to see him out there. And again, this is a team that has luxury tax consequences, a team that has a limited number of roster spots and a whole hell of a lot to play for. So choosing Deontay Burton is a big step.
2: Uh, I have uh, some pedantry. Uh, I have a question. Yes. Are we going to use Convert for when it's a two-way contract that becomes a multi-year deal?
1: to me so so here's here's where i'm running into trouble with it because we've been using the terminology of like a unilateral conversion right for and and so i'm actually fine with calling it a conversion when it's a new contract and calling it a unilateral conversion when it's the one like what happened with daniel house i'm fine doing that but i don't think that's what people are doing right now so if it were me, I would say we use a different word, like transitioned or signed a new con, you know, something signed. like signed, 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 because. You don't need to say, like, he's signing a contract. Like, if it's coming from a two-way, that doesn't necessarily need its own verb unless it's being unilaterally converted, because that's something fundamentally different. So, yeah, I would go with signed and understand that, like, signed him to an NBA contract that it's from a two-way or something like that. Yeah, I agree with you. Well,
2: well two-way is still an NBA contract. Yeah, I've gone oh, back true. and forth on this a little bit. This is this is a new era uh, with these two-way contracts. and uh, But I am with you that I, I think the right time to use conversion is only when the team unilaterally moderately converts it. Uh, and when it's just a new contract... You know, you say they signed him to a contract. Uh, you can say he was previously on a two-way deal, but it is a new contract.
1: I agree with you. Last piece of news, and this could be significant. Hopefully it's not. Markeith I hope Morris, it's
2: more significant. Oh, well, actually, I hope it's less significant right. than what we just talked about.
1: Yeah. So Marquise Morris left Monday's game with neck soreness. And, you know, normally a player leaving a game with neck soreness is not that big a deal. But a neck issue is what cost Marquise Morris a bunch of time earlier this season. You know, that what derailed his year with the Washington Wizards. So you hope for the best, you hope that this is, you know, it's just like something that was a little bit off and the team was being cautious, but we'll have to see because it's, it, you know, it's another reminder that while he's a talented player that we, until we know that this is like a hundred percent in the clear, you know, you're going to be a little bit, a little bit shaky with it.
2: Right. I mean, this is this is the reason he got to the Thunder in the first place is he wasn't healthy. And that that's what led to the Wizards trading him and him getting waves. And that, that set everything into motion. And so this is dealing with it is, is part of it. Hopefully he's OK.
1: Anything else to discuss? I think we're I think we're in the clear.
2: Everything I got.
1: OK, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So to be honest,
3: I have long resisted watch creep. I don't need to get my wrist blown up with a text message. I don't need to know how many steps I've taken. If I want to look at my phone and see if someone has texted me, I will do that. I think a watch should be about telling time and classic minimal style. And that's what movement watches believe as well. Their watches start at just ninety five dollars, compared to four hundred dollars for the same quality from a traditional brand. Their styled minimalism is something that I really have enjoyed for many years. I didn't wear a watch at all, and I really fell in love with their forty series, a little bit smaller, stands for forty millimeters. And movement now has sold two million watches in over one hundred and sixty countries. If you're an international listener, you're looking for a gift. Movement is a great sponsor to utilize. My mom actually bought some for my cousin's if you want a good present for your significant other i highly encourage you just to go to movement.com that's mvmt.com slash capspace and just check out all of the styles that they have i think it's very likely when you go there you'll find something that really appeals to you they have a lot of different styles they're launching new ones all the time and what's more if you go to that slash capspace url movement.com slash capspace eastern america we talk about capspace all the time in the program go to that slash capspace url you'll get 15 percent off with free shipping and free returns and that's no matter where you are in the world that's movement.com mvmt.com slash capspace join the movement and let them know at that slash capspace url that you came from us So now it is time to get to a subject near and dear to our hearts. The worst contracts in the NBA. I think we're just going to go through the teams here and point out some candidates to start with. Then Danny and I are each going to pick our top five worst contracts and then argue about which ones we think are the worst. But one thing that really struck me overall here is... Every single one of the contracts I picked, this is a little bit of foreshadowing here, was not a free agent contract. Almost invariably, free agent contracts, you're bidding against a ton of people. You want to get the guy. You have this cap space. In a lot of cases, it's going to evaporate the next year with, or you've, you've got a low cap hold you can utilize, but then you're going to sign someone after that and so in future years you won't have cap space and so you feel like hey we just got to use this cap space now because it's going to go away you know that happened to washington and portland and detroit in 2016 for example but because all the free agent money got spent in 2020 and maybe to a slightly lesser extent or or, sorry in 2016 contracts ending in 2020 and then to a lesser extent 2017 our rule here is that the contract has to go past 2020 because it's really you know now it's not that bad of a contract if it only goes for one more year after this one Because there hasn't been that much free agent money around and because extension rules have been relaxed to some degree, all five of my worst contracts in the NBA are actually extensions that were signed by the team rather than free agent contracts, which is uh, rather remarkable
1: it is and something that I think is worth mentioning in terms of the idea of oh uh, why won't you have expiring contracts and there's one I'll bring up that it's bad but you also get the flexibility for a lot of these teams now there are, there are franchises let's say the Knicks would be an obvious one that really don't want a lot of 2019-20 money but theoretically with those kinds of a contract you could either eat it for one year or you could use the stretch provision and extend that money over three years and yeah it's dead money but that sort of flexibility is useful and when you're talking about bad contracts there. It's not as it's not as hamstringing as the longer term deals are. And there are enough there aren't as many bad contracts on that purview. And I think part of that's just because we didn't see as many long contracts signed in 17 and 18, but it is my full expectation that this group will get some new additions oh, baby. over the course of this year. Cause we're actually going to see money. We're going to see guys looking for long-term contracts because part of what happened was there weren't, me- there wasn't enough money around for, for people to sign those really long-term deals. So I think it-, it is going to open up and we'll see some, we'll see some of this brethren, but yeah, you want to go, go team by team. At the beginning. And, and, oh, and that's another good thing. A, a healthy way to think about this is, so it's not rigidly this, but, you know, like, how, what's the margin between how valuable the player is and how much they're being paid? So sure. a completely shitty... 10 million is one thing, but then like a $5 million player making 20 million is a worse contract. Even though you are getting a better player out of it, you're just paying a lot for it. And that comes into play. Like there are some good players, some very good players on, on my worst contracts list, but it's just because they're being paid too much money. And then that can become a problem.
3: And certainly there's an eye of the beholder aspect here of course, as well. So I think it's also actually noteworthy how few teams I mean there're plenty of teams that don't really have any bad contracts right now at least by by this requirement now so some of those have bad contracts but they just end sooner uh and the reason maybe that they don't have bad contracts that run longer is because they had such bad contracts that they signed back in 2016 that they just couldn't sign anymore so mm-hmm. I, as you mentioned I, think- I,
1: I like how this is a perfect lead into the hawks but you haven't brought them up yet because that is that is the place to start here because miles plumley is an awful contract i mean he's going to make 12.5 yeah. million for next year but then it's done then you you wipe that all away. And Atlanta doesn't have any money beyond 2020, other than rookie scale contracts and rookie scale contracts have team options. They, you know, like there are sometimes negative value rookie scale contracts, but they're pretty rare. So the Hawks to me are free and clear of anybody that would be seriously considered for this
3: i agree uh, boston same thing at, at this point oh you know, here me, we disagree who who is on there for boston gordon hayward
1: he's not in my Uh-oh. top five but gordon hayward 7 million Oh for yeah you know what? I,
3: I forgot i forgot that he goes an extra year i thought he ended in 20 in my head yeah
1: and game, that's I, I will only say this once because i say it enough times player options are not team friendly because you assume the player is going to be rational about it now if gordon hayward plays awesome next year and will looks like he can do well as a free agent he will decline that player option and then he's an unrestricted free agent if he picks it up that means he wasn't worth it and so yeah Gordon Hayward is I'd be mean, he has the physical talent this isn't like an age-related thing I think there is a distinct chance that he will be a better player in 2019-20 than he has been this year but I mean that's 65 million basically in in money and sorry 60 67 million in money and that's not great
3: yeah I, I don't know how I, I missed that one i guess i just thought that he ended in fact let me make a note on my sheet right now that it, uh to project him to opt into that player option <laughs> in 2021 rather than opt out and maybe he'll get a lot better next year but yeah it really it does seem like he's just not even close to the same and perhaps if he were on another team with fewer options he could get his mojo back and fix it so this wasn't too bad but yeah i mean we've been almost an entire season now and he had showed some signs and since the all star break i think he's seven out of 25 from the field i mean he's having games where like he's taking like two or three shots in 25 minutes i mean it's just he's not even close to the same guy so yeah he's he's right up there that was a massive oversight by me brooklyn you agree don't really have anything i mean obviously alan crabb was not amazing but aside from that there's really they don't really have anything that goes beyond 2020 other than dinwiddie and rookie contracts at, at this point point. and dinwiddie i think you know 11 million a year solid value going forward.
1: No argument there, so we can move on to Charlotte. Charlotte's Contribution is Nick Batum. Nikola Batum will make fifty two point seven million over the two subsequent seasons. He has a final year player option, so worth twenty seven point one million. So I he he gets consideration for me. I, I will say that he doesn't make my final five, partially because of the duration and everything else, but yeah. there's a lot of negative value on that contract too.
3: Yeah, I mean that's one of the few Sour 16s that actually goes for five years. Remarkable that even we were saying at the time that this was to get him for less than the max was a relative bargain Uh, and he was coming off a pretty good year and obviously there was just so much money out there but uh no it it turns out it uh was out of and uh i probably could opt in to that uh 27 million dollar player option in 2021 uh cody zeller you're uh i mean he's not in consideration for the top five but and that's a bad contract right or or just i I think more because due to his health concerns and also you know i mean he's probably you know not in the top 25 at his position at this point i guess we still got to do some more position rankings here towards the end of the year but uh you know i think that he's serviceable but the injury concerns and the fact that he's not really spectacular in any one area that means you know 15 million a year basically over the next two Years is a little steep. There
1: it is, and also Zeller doesn't really have the untapped potential that some of the other guys who've centers who've signed contracts, you know, like Yusuf Nurkic. We talked about that in the 15 and 60 a week ago. But he, you know, like we, we thought that he could be a much better player at some point down the line. He has been this year. Miles Turner has been this year. Clint Capella had a way better year last year than Cody Zeller. And those guys are all making similar money for different durations. And Zeller is materially worse than those guys. And there's reason to believe that he will not end up better than those guys, other than potentially if he can stay on the floor longer than them. Cleveland,
3: uh, I guess Chicago oh yeah yeah yeah. sorry I didn't mean how could I skip Chicago with Cristiano Felicio 8 million the next two years uh, on average he scored in double figures for the first time since last year's season finale against the Hawks over the weekend (laughs) or I guess guess this is running next week so it's a couple weeks ago now but uh Buenos Ding Don Diddly Diaz from Argentina hopefully that Simpsons reference isn't lost on everybody here Uh, but yeah Felicio I mean that's just completely dead 8 million dollars the process of that, bidding, the Bulls bidding against themselves right at the start of 2017 free agency, uh, and Felicio has been one of the worst players in the NBA from essentially the moment that was signed. Although, it did seem like he wouldn't be as terrible as he has been in the Bulls' defense.
1: And I would consider it a a victory, considering how critical I was of the deal at the time, that I, I did not think too hard about Zach Levine being on this list. You know, nineteen point five million flat for each of the next couple years. I'm still skeptical of what he is on a good team on like an actual you know not bottom five team but plenty of physical potential has looked better this year. I mean obviously better than he looked last year which was something we expected. And then Otto Porter, I still feel that his contract is is negative value, but it isn't like severely negative. And when we're talking about the worst contracts in the league, giving Otto Porter a wing, wings are just valuable around the league giving him about 28 million a year for an, an additional 2 years beyond this season. It's not great, but it's not terrible.
3: Well, and the Bulls Acquired him thinking basically that he would help them more than just using that money as a free agent contract. Now, they may not be correct about that, but he is a quality player. He adds something on both ends. And I mean, they've gotten a lot better since they added him. And I agree, it's not great money, but for only two more years for a guy who's contributing, compare him, to, you know, similar money to Batum basically at this point in time. And he contributes far more than he does. So yeah, I don't think he's really a serious contender and he was just you know he got acquired for uh as a, someone that they actually wanted to have on their team you know I mean if you were making 17 or 18 million I don't think you know that's probably relatively close to right for the production that that he's providing um let's turn to Cleveland now they've got a couple candidates
1: they do I, the number one candidate is Kevin love Kevin love after this season that's when his extension kicks in four years 120.4 million remaining and Usual structure that it is, it goes up and then stays the same. So it goes, I'll just read the numbers, 28 313, 31-3, 9 Now, whether that structure is, I mean, obviously it's better for teams later on because it's just less money that they owe him, but whether that difference matters a whole lot, we don't know. And then the other one that we'll probably consider, I didn't have him high on my list, is Larry Nance. Larry Nance, you know, kind of a similar concern to Cody Zeller if he's, he's not worth the money that they're paying him. I think, I personally think I'd rather have Cody Zeller on my team than Larry Nance for a couple different reasons easily
3: like not even close yeah
1: and nance's so nance's four years 45 million basically on that extension his also kicks in for next season
3: yeah that one at least does decline though starts at 12.7 goes down to 9.7 over the course of the deal which helps as far as when you're thinking about trade value and nance is not i think he's a quality player but still a 4.5 defensively doesn't really have enough shooting range to be a huge offensive asset i think his athleticism is Declined markedly since his Lakers days. Already, He's a little older than you think, and then he also is going to miss twenty games a year with injuries too, which you have to price in with him as well. So that that was really not a great extension to me. And you can get similar production uh, again. We get it to how deep the big man market is. Similar production is available. I mean, you compare him to like a Mantras Harrell, for example, who I think you know Harrell is kind of who the Cavs want to believe that Nance was going to be, and you know Harrell was a restricted free agent but you know nance would have been as well when if he had gotten to restricted free agency and you know Harold is what three years 18 million so uh is that right no what, what is he let me double check No, harrell is was uh two years 12 is what he was so yeah, but but love is the big one. I mean, that one, these ones that just like go so far into the future, you can't even see them. I and mean, those are the ones that we really like. We can't even really grasp how far these some of these contracts go in the future. Because really, for the last ten years since the twenty eleven CBA, we haven't had these crazy albatross contracts that are taking up you know thirty, forty percent of the cap that go out that far.
1: There's another big problem this will come up with a few different players, but not that many, where if you believe, as, as I do and as you do, that Kevin Love has a negative value contract, it actually makes him way harder to trade because there aren't many ways to cut that price because nobody gets paid that long. So there isn't like a $5 million or $10 million a year player, other than Larry Dance, incidentally, who is paid out that long. So if you are taking him on, but you think, ah, you know, like, I like Kevin Love, but I don't like him at $30 million a year. Well, there isn't really a guy with, you know, that's like, like the equivalent of like a Cristiano Felicio on a four-year contract. Those don't exist yet. There'll probably be some this summer. And I think that makes it a lot harder for the Cavs to move Love unless there's a team that just thinks he's great and is going to do it. And that's why I think there's a, a substantial chance that, Love is going to be on their on their team for at least this coming season, if not longer than that, just because finding the right partner is going to be exceedingly difficult.
3: Yeah, and who they get in the draft is going to be real interesting for Love's future uh, as well. If they get Zion, Love and he are not the greatest cohabitants uh, in the long term. But yeah, and Love has played well. I mean, he's he's helped them quite a bit I think it's not that he's a bad player it's just you know he's probably I don't know would you say this year is making 24 million would you say he's worth about that when healthy I think he's pretty close to there
1: I think that's a little rich I would have him more in the like 18 to 20 million dollar yeah. range it, but it
3: depends what kind of team you are too right like ironically since he's been on the Cavs we've been in the finals every year you know at the highest levels just his defensive shortcomings and his inability I think to beat the best defenders one-on-one becomes an issue but if you're talking about a team that's you know just trying to get into the playoffs i think he has a lot of value and, and we've seen that yeah, you know just what he's added to the Cavs just since he's come back even in limited minutes
1: he hasn't been as good as as blake griffin over the last couple of years but that's a pretty good model for what you're saying i mean blake griffin is is the best player on the pistons and is propelling them towards a, a pretty good record this year and if if what how they have played over the last little bit is an indication then maybe they could have done better earlier
3: yeah but then love bumps up and obviously he's getting older and you know you also you have to consider that he's i mean if he plays more than 60 games in a season from here on out you would have to count that as a as a win and when you're talking about the type of teams that he's helping ones that are just trying to get into the playoffs while missing 20 games in the regular season when the regular season is what's important to you uh that that makes it a lot less palatable as well dallas tim hardaway jr a ludicrous contract from the moment the knicks signed that offer sheet during the phil jackson scott perry into regnum in the summer of 2017
1: do you do you remember where we were when we were together when we heard about that signing
3: no i don't recall was it in utah
1: we were at utah summer league in our hotel was the two of us and kevin pelton we were getting dinner after the day's summer league i think that was the day that donovan mitchell had shut down jason tatum and we were all sitting there and it was late in the day you know we were kind of tired and then that news broke and kevin's like oh i have to write now and then i think i ended up writing for something for the athletic as well and um it was because we're just sitting there going like why i mean that and and hardaway it's not immense negative value i mean i I still but it is negative value
3: well what what, what is he i I would characterize him as like a four to five million dollar player in my I,
1: I was thinking more in the like 6,67 million dollar range personally it is oh hardaway is also a great example i i should have brought this up i'm mad at myself that i didn't when we talked about it on the podcast like because he didn't pick up his his player option then he only got the bonus on the remaining years of his contract before the bonus so he'll be making 20 million next season and then 18 sorry 19 basically the year after that because he didn't pick it up he, sh- he should have just done that i guess he wanted the flexibility but he's not going to be a 20 million pro- player. million dollar million i'd
3: probably rather have the flexibility uh, mm. as i mean i mean even though yeah it does seem i
1: mean you might get bought out or something you can you can talk to his former teammate and his about that
3: yeah but that's one that's uh, again only goes two more years so that's not great but certainly uh, and i think his performance in Dallas so far has backed up uh, our opinion of him Denver they've got jokic who goes out that's obviously a great deal um Gary Harris and Will Barton each go out three more years Harris is going to average a little over 18 over the next three years barton will average 13 a little over 13 over the next three years does have a player option on the end of that for 14.7 million i think those will end up being fine barton i worry about towards the end of it harris i mean that contract looked totally good until he had all these injury problems this year and you never know guys could just kind of fall off and not be the same after coming back from injuries they both obviously you know will barton have that core muscle injury as well but but clearly, these guys have been productive players so far, it, not really in any kind of consideration, but just wants to keep an eye on here if they can't get back to the level of performance that they've been at previously. And Barton was one that I didn't really care for even when it was signed, especially due to the back end.
1: We can move on to yeah. the to the Pistons. The Pistons have two guys that are on big contracts. I classified them as big, but not awful. And I mean, Blake Griffin, just a lot of money. Three years, $110 million final year player option. Andre Drummond, 2 Two years 55.8 million final year player option so I wouldn't I don't think they're among the worst contracts in the league both those guys have played well especially recently they're they're young enough I, and, and full credit to Blake Griffin I expected that contract to be a disaster but he's played excellently I mean bona fide all-star I haven't Yeah, we'll, we'll see if if, where he is in terms of all NBA consideration he has a lot to do in Detroit but so you know those those contracts are big but I wouldn't say they're you know even if they're maybe like slight negative value maybe Maybe they're not in this conversation
3: yeah Griffin brings up a, an interesting conundrum of the idea in a contract of paying more money late in the contract to get the guy for productive years early in the contract now a big reason why we were so low on Griffin was potential injury concerns he stayed completely healthy basically since he got to Detroit so uh, that there's always that sort of damage who's hanging over the whole thing but it, a year of health makes you think that that's a little bit in the rearview mirror and he's played as you mentioned at an all-star level he's been worth the contract that he was signed to so far and to actually get a guy like that who's providing that level who's worth his contract now you can look at the end of it and say yeah you know what that's going to be really rough going forward here but you're getting enough production on the front end that i don't think you have to worry about it as much i mean even if you're looking oh man this 30s 7 million 39 million these last 2 years really sucks. You could look at it at that point and be like, "Hey, over the life of the contract, this wasn't too bad." I think you you kind of have to look at it that way in some respects because ultimately what these lists go back to is, you know, you're evaluating the decision to sign the guy and to, to some degree. Um now, it's a little different if you're talking about trade value going into the future because that doesn't what he's previously done doesn't matter as much there, but um what are your thoughts on that? Is it fair to incorporate the kind of present value as and even maybe a little bit previous value into these contracts? Or should we just be looking at it solely as this is exactly what we can expect going forward?
1: I'm overwhelmingly forward looking on it. But if you want to, if you want to price that in a, a tiny bit. Yeah, fine. I think of it more as a tiebreaker than anything else. Like, for that's that's the way I see it. I, there is total legitimacy to your approach. It's just not the way I do it.
3: Yeah. And it's just, you know, the, there's sort of a, oh man, you know, how how could these guys have been so dumb to sign these guys to the country? We try to avoid that kind of thinking unless we were saying it at the time. uh But yeah, I mean, this is one that actually has looked better. Uh, it was the Clippers who made that decision to sign him. And both in terms of who the player has been and what they were able to get for him in trade, uh, it's looked pretty good uh, ultimately. But yeah, neither of those guys in serious contention for me with houston chris paul somewhat of a similar analysis for me as his old clippers teammate but paul i mean those numbers just escalate so much 35 this year 38 41 and then a player option for 44 i think everyone knew that that was going to be a bad contract by the end the disappointment has been him not playing an all-star level this year he's looked much better as we talked about a little bit ago on the 15 and 60 since the all-star break but i mean this is going to be a tough one still didn't make my top five quite yet because he's still a very good Player. I think you can expect semi-All-Star production out of him the next couple of years uh, until it really begins to, to fall off.
1: If we had recorded this a couple of weeks ago, I think I would have had Chris Paul higher yeah. on the list because he 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 looked pretty washed. I mean, but he, since the All-Star break, he has been a lot better and looking more like himself. And you do have concerns with Chris Paul that he's not going to be able to play in a ton of games. I mean, we brought that up with Kevin Lev. It's even more fair to bring it up with CP. And he's you know he's gonna have to even just for routine maintenance he's gonna miss time but i i still think there's a really good player in there for now and small point guards oftentimes they age poorly we'll see where that comes in maybe he's the next john stockton and and can can do better than most of his height brethren but you get in there and then like the only other the long-term contracts harden i mean there's a possibility that contract looks bad at some point but he's an mvp candidate right now and he's still young enough to be at that level for another little while capella's fine and uh pete T. j tucker has a partial guarantee for 2020 21 so i didn't seriously consider him anyway
3: memphis mike conley is an injury away from being on this list but another guy actually he was a potential sour 16 who is held up better than expected 32 million next year 34 million the year after but he's actually i think someone that teams were trying to acquire on the trade market at least a few teams and that could be revisited this offseason potentially so he he's not really consideration here kyle anderson is one to consider you know he's missed a lot of time this year he's been when wanting healthy a big part of why their offense hasn't really worked out he's nine million a year basically for the next three years after with this one that's looks like a bit of an overplay but he's still an effective player uh, as well they, they got him in restricted free agency of course Miami they're uh, a little bit of a contractual graveyard here these days
1: I, I'm a little bit disappointed that you didn't even tease LeBron not that he was going to get on this list obviously but you know like considering how chaotic this season has been but yeah Miami so they're in a tough spot because they have a lot of contracts that are bad and ineligible. You know, Ryan Anderson's partial guarantee for next year. Hassan Whiteside is just maybe twenty-seven million next year, unless he opts out, which would be incredible for Miami. But then they have James Johnson half for for two years, with the second of those years being a player option. Dion Waiters at basically twelve five and. I think Winslow's done well this year, so he didn't make serious consideration. But you know, thirteen million a year for for him is, yeah. is a lot. You know, so that's he, yeah. he didn't like. I, I would rather have his contract than Deion Waiters personally.
3: Sure, and he's young enough to continue yes. to take steps forward, and he has taken steps forward this year. And, and even Alenik has played and, better too.
1: Right. Yeah. I I don't. I, Alenik didn't have serious consideration for me, yeah. but I mean, I mean like, he's
3: Linux kind of in the same category as Cor- uh, Cody Zeller to me.
1: Sure. Yeah. Where he's he's over he's overpaid relative to what he is, but it's it's not just like. Cap- catastrophic. And with with Winslow the other thing that I like about his contract is that forwards who can defend, like you can use them even if he's not e- even if some of the like the shooting and stuff isn't all the way there, he still is a useful player. Like his floor is higher than like a center where you can just get guys for the minimum. The replacement value isn't there. And yeah, I mean, James Johnson, I still like him as a player when he's healthy, but he's just been completely sidetracked with stuff, and so having to commit to 31 million for him over the next two years that's a lot that's a lot of James Johnson
3: yeah it seemed like that's what the heat felt too when he uh first got into their facility this year uh but yeah I mean he's he's really struggled Milwaukee Tony Snell 11 million a year the next two years uh, that he's actually got a $500,000 incentive that he's probably gonna hit so the Bucks are playing a little bit of a luxury tax dance right now having signed Pago. so I think they're they can finish about 46,000 under the tax as it stands right now but Snell seemed like a 3 and d archetype i think he's an interesting cautionary tale on how tenuous it can be for players like that sometimes if your defense slips a little bit if your three-point shooting slips a little bit if you don't do anything else at all if you don't have like the longest track record i mean i think that's what you know he had one good year and then got signed to that extension i still think snell can do more than he's necessarily being given a chance to do here i think he can be pretty effective but still not a guy who guards the absolute best wing players and you know pretty limited usage guy. So Ike, a useful player, a rotation player, but uh, well overpaid at that number to be certain.
1: So I have a question for you. Tony Snell, It's the contracts have different structures. He has paid $5 million less than Kyle Anderson over the the post this year parts of their contracts. How do you? How, who would you rather have? Would you rather have Tony Snell plus five million, or would you rather have Kyle Anderson?
3: I think Snell just fits on more teams. Even if Anderson, certain teams that need someone at the four that needs some passing and some defensive playmaking could use Anderson more. But no, I think Snell due to his superior versatility, superior health record as well. um All right, here we go. Minnesota is next in alphabetical order.
1: We. So... Minnesota, which just briefly discussed, Gorgie Jang, two years, $34 million left after this season. That is completely ridiculous. I mean, arguing okay. that he, he is... like a
3: crappy backup center at this
1: point. Yeah. I mean, so that's that's a ton of money. And like I, I know we want to talk about, you know, like, oh, Cristiano, Cristiano Felicio. And yeah, his two years and $16 million is bad. Gorgie Jang makes basically twice as much money over the same duration of time. And the difference between those two players is not that important I, I do think jang is better but i don't think that that difference is going to like win you a ton of games or anything like that
3: yeah and if you're gonna say how many teams would he be an upgrade for at backup center at this point you're it's not gonna be that long of a list and, and you know you also have one of the most durable big men in nba history who's a superstar playing ahead of him so that that doesn't help matter as much and then uh then there's andrew wiggins
1: andrew wiggins four years 122 million so he and kevin love make very similar money but wiggins is structured in the more conventional path of being eight percent raises per season so that means he will go all the way up to 33.6 million in 22 23 that is a lot of money for andrew wiggins and i mean so he'll be making more than twice as much at and a couple years from now almost three times as much as robert covington but i I think we can save our our detailed wiggins stuff because i have a strange suspicion that he will come up a little bit later
3: yes i i I suppose that's true. Um, Congratulations
1: one, congratulations to Solomon Hill for expiring soon enough that he no longer makes the list. Yay. Yeah,
3: yeah. No, that's, uh, I mean, New Orleans not having anybody who qualifies is is pretty remarkable here.
1: Well, and New York not having anybody that qualifies is remarkable.
3: Yeah, well, that we'll see whether that's the case after this summer. <laughs> we will. Uh, but no, actually, New York, uh, there is one guy who popped out to me a little bit, Frank Nilakina making 4.9 next year, team option for 6.2, but generally those options get picked up i mean you you can't always just dump it but for a guy his age teams just seem to pick them up but and then it'll there's that sunk cost aspect so i'm pricing in that they would pick it up in theory but i mean he's given them absolutely nothing and has had big time health issues this year as well still a, a guy i'm not ready to totally give up on yet but i mean for that production to be just you know maybe the worst offensive point guard in the nba is pretty rough
1: I still like Frank, so I'm hurt by that, but I'm not outraged by it.
3: But again, not in serious consideration at at that number. Oklahoma City has a lot of guys who are in consideration here. Russell Westbrook starts at 35.7 this year. That goes all the way out five years, ending at $47 million, a player option in the 22-23 season. And... Certainly, the declines in his game this season have been completely troubling. I think you could argue, even at the 35 million, would you say he's overpaid this year at the 35
1: million? I would, I mean, Paul George has been so important for their offense. We've seen in, I mean, that time when Paul George missed due to shoulder soreness, we saw how their offense fell off a cliff and some of that was guys missing threes, you know, things that you don't expect to continue over a fuller sample, but Westbrook- Well, well,
3: with their roster- Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Without Paul George, I actually-
1: That's, yeah. But so I I would say, and, and Westbrook, you know, he's been better defensively overall, but the specific brand of defense he plays is, it's inconsistent. He's not always getting into his guy. And then offensively, he's a wonderful passer, but he can't help himself from some of the bad shots. And remember, we both picked him, and I, I believe it was the right call that he was the MVP in 16, 17, but that relied on insane clutch performance, which we didn't expect. Like, I mean, Russ, that year, I think if we had done our best players in the NBA at the end of that season, so that's really looking forward, like, because the idea of that is like the rest of the season. So let's say theoretically that would have been for the following season. I think I probably would have had him somewhere around seventh in the league, as great as he had been, just because we, I didn't yeah. expect to see all of that continue. And unlike James Harden, who has really delivered for the most part on what he did in his MVP season, Westbrook didn't, you know, the the, the regression to the mean happened, but then he's also aging. And yeah, so Westbrook, the the overall number, just because you're talking about 40 million a year, I want to have the actual number out there. Four years, 171 million after this year. So that means that while he is a significantly better player, Westbrook will make 50 million more than college teammate Kevin Love and Andrew Wiggins so that's you know like he's a better player but than Andrew Wiggins and Kevin Love but 50 million is that's that's more than 10 million a year that's 12.5 a year
3: now certainly he has more value to OKC just as a franchise icon as the guy who stayed when when KD left and just as an overall draw to be sure that that's value that matters for a team you know he's going to get his jersey retired there he's going to be hall of famer he could spend his entire career in oklahoma city be kind of like their their dirk except you know not winning a championship and not being as good so if you're talking about his trade value which is a lot of times the lens that we look at this it's going to be lower than his value is to okc i mean he also got uh, the fact that they signed that contract was a big reason why paul george ended up staying so uh, we may talk about him again here but it's there are some mitigating factors and people say oh he's still playing at an all-star level he, he's under contract yeah but i mean four years from now is so long so long especially for a guy with his type of game what about steven adams i, I like what is your view of his he's not a guy whose contract gets talked about because it, it seems very popular to just refer to him as A guy who's really underrated, but if you compare him to guys who are are kind of in a similar class to him, your Nurkic, your Miles Turner, your Clint Capella, he is by far paid way more than those guys. Twenty six and a half million on average over the next two years after this one, and but you know, so he's obviously nowhere close to being on a worst contracts list overall. But it's just an interesting discussion about what his value is. You know, I think he's kind of overpaid by you know around eight million a season or so.
1: It's the unusual double. of a guy being underrated and overpaid, and he's a wonderful player, but that's a lot, especially with the the replacement player for centers being so high. And I love Stephen Adams. I mean, I'm a huge fan of him. He's making more Adamses than Rudy Gobert over the next couple of seasons. Those guys were drafted in the same class, very different parts of the same class, but they were there, they were there. And I think Gobert is a superior player, and that's that's fine. You know, you don't have to be the best value at your position there. Not that he's in consideration for the absolute worst contracts list, but Dennis Schroeder at basically 31 million 50 he's a flat 155 for every season he put he's through the 2021 season that's a negative value contract. I mean, to me, this season has been a reminder that he's, to me, he's not starting caliber. He can be a very useful, valuable backup slash injury replacement, but those types of players don't usually make fifteen million a year. Even if, I mean, point guard playing getting forty eight minutes at that position is very, very important.
3: I've gotten some tweets from OKC fans as they've played well this year about like what a moron I was for thinking that that trade for shooter wasn't a good one to give up a first round pick for him yeah they got off a of Carmelo but then his salary of course goes out way further but there is just absolutely no statistical argument backing up that he's worth anywhere close to that salary 50% true shooting this season negative one offensive piPM negative 1.5 defensive piPM so overall piPM is negative 2.57 that is absolutely atrocious and they have had to start staggering Westbrook and George because any units with just him as the main offensive creator have completely flatlined um here's one uh, Orlando I don't think I would put uh, Evan Fortier in this category he's a solid enough starting shooting guard that, that s- salary is flat only 17 million a year he's overpaid but you know for maybe two three million dollars four million dollars like that but uh I think he's still a guy that i would have taken the risks to get but markel fultz 9.7 next year 12.3 the year after that although it is a team option we'll see i mean if he can't even play by next october 31st maybe they'll just decline that option but that's uh i mean to to be making eight million a year and now it's going to go up even more that 9.7 is already locked in for next year and more likely than not that he will provide absolutely zero production uh that's not a very contract, most likely, but it still, it still has a glimmer of hope. I, I wouldn't mind having it, but it's also very likely an awful contract, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, like you think about how Fultz is making... Not that much. You know, like the overall obligation to him outside of this year is kind of similar to Cristiano Felicio. And Marco Fultz just isn't playing. You know, he's not he's not playing at all. And we'll have to see what he looks like. Now, I think even a thoracic outlet syndromed Marco Fultz still could provide some value, but it obviously would be very limited and be more like a kind of a, a backup point guard in the minimum to slightly above minimum realm, but and, but you're right. I mean the way that the way that you would think about this is just like how locked in are you on that on that option? And the reason I wouldn't have him on the list is just because I think teams, you know, if they're really not at that value, they can decline it with Fultz. They'll have a lot more information by October, so they can get into it. I I didn't seriously consider Fultz, but you, you've been more open to it on those. The only guy for Philly that's paid out that far right now is Joel Embiid. Joel Embiid is an absolutely wonderful player. You know, worry a little bit about the knee stuff and everything else, but but he doesn't get it he doesn't get in that consideration. The Phoenix Suns. The Suns have I would classify Devin Booker in kind of that same group as as Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond where it's a big contract but it's not awful so Booker five years 158 million as of right now we don't know exactly where it's going to be because of the cap and then the other guy that is consideration there he's had a wonderful season so I he didn't even get close to making my list but another guy who's paid for a lot TJ Warren after this year three years 35 million so you know if he's starting for you that and and is starting caliber totally fine. But if he's, you know, a backup forward, that's, you know, it's not great. It's I would say it's modest negative value if, if that's what he ends up being. But if this year when he was healthy is true, then yeah, totally Booker, fine.
3: Booker, of course, one of the more controversial players in the league, and players like that, those high scoring two guards who don't do a ton else, he's added some passing this year. But how transferable is that skill set? Now, I think Booker's value around the league is much higher than we believe it to be. And that's something that, even if we don't think he's providing the production, the fact that he could be traded for something does have to go into our analysis, even if we don't think he's that good. Because when you're talking about these contracts, it's well, what could you move it for a lot of times? And so, probably, I would imagine that most teams view him as a positive value on his contract as of now so it's hard to put him on this list I think if he were to change teams and get on a more talented team you could see with a lesser offensive role that he could just totally lose his value he might be more valuable to the Suns than other teams just due to their total lack of creation or you could see him step up and be able to set guys up and look a lot better defensively in a more coherent ecosystem and being out of the totally dysfunctional uh Suns culture so it's re- really difficult to say what he would look like on another team but i think because of the fact that the league rates him pretty highly tough to say that he should be on this list but certainly one to really watch out for and if he does change teams it could be one of those things where he craters and he's just a bench scorer making a match max contract on a really good team uh patty mills on san antonio that's one where we actually didn't think it was that bad at the time we thought of him as a lower caliber starting point guard who can shoot play off the ball a a good fit seemed like philly might try to sign him at, at one point In that twenty seventeen off season, Mills is due an average of about. 13 million over the next 2 years that clearly uh, as a guy guy's uh, not a starter in San Antonio and probably has too many defensive limitations to start anywhere at this point in his cruise is on the downside now age wise that's not great that's the only one in San Antonio Norm
1: Powell in Toronto he's in that group of like you talk about that it's a negative value contract but he's not in the worst of the worst 3 more years yeah. after this year about 10 and a half a year and he has that 11.6 million dollar player option in 2122 he's doing a lot better then but then he can opt out and leave and Toronto doesn't really have anybody else in that conversation
3: yeah Uh, and if you put Powell on a different team he could very easily live up to that contract yeah. yeah it's an, i think a lot of it's just been about opportunity in toronto
1: so i have been public that i with my belief that dante exum is a negative contract at this yeah. at this point
3: with, i know this latest injury i am on board with you he's kind of in the folds category of hey he's at least got some upside but yeah i think the most likely outcome is that he, he's a massive negative there yeah
1: paying paying exum 10 million dollars a year and, and we don't even have really definitive proof because he's missed so much time. And I mean, I still believe that there's a good player in there that he's like a reliable backup point guard, even in the minutes he plays. He, like, you know, he's one of those guys who's a better player than he is creator for like, for other people and stuff. And i I still like his physical gifts and he turns 24 this summer still room to grow but like we're you know we're getting there so xm he's not in the conversation for the worst of the worst or anything like that but i would say he's negative value
3: and finally for washington john wall is on this list we will discuss him extensively in just a moment here
1: congratulations to the wizards for only having one guy on this list though that's that's pretty good work by them sort of
3: well they've been so capped out by terrible contracts that expire in 2020 that they fall into the couldn't sign any more of these guys so if you'd like to go and see some of these players and uh you know just how much they're not living up to their contracts all right that's not a very good pitch maybe if you'd like to go see some players who aren't on this list SeatGeek is the way to do it SeatGeek saves you time and saves you money compared to other ways of procuring tickets They save you time in a couple of ways. Number one, they rank every ticket based on value. So you look in the section you want to look at, look for that big green dot, and you just pick the best value. Now you don't have to get FOMO in your head of, oh man, what if I, is this ticket that's $10 more expensive, but it's one section to the left, like, is that... A better deal. SeatGeek's algorithms can just tell you about it. I I trust them. I just click on it. it. It's easy. And then they bring a bunch of different tickets together. I've used them for my annual trip to Milwaukee with my wife, where we actually go as fans. That's a ton of fun, and we always get a a great deal on tickets up there using SeatGeek. If you haven't tried SeatGeek yet, and that would be a surprise because they are the inaugural sponsor of the show almost four years ago now. You can get $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase via the familiar promo code CAPSPACE. Easy to remember because we've been uh, talking about it just a little bit today. That's promo code CAPSPACE for $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek Life's an event. We have the tickets, and don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came From us. All right.
1: Well, so before we get into the bottom five, I want to give a special superlative award to the worst expiring contract. So players that we didn't consider because their contract only runs one year, but it's still a bad contract. And that's Chandler Parsons. Congratulations. $25.1 million for Chandler Parsons is completely insane. But since it's only one year, they could structure it as that, or they could do three you know, three years if, if Memphis or theoretically another trade partner could do it. So he's not on the list, but that is a lot of bad money. Oh, that's correct. So the way I... I, I I... I actually have a a framing because it just so happens that I had three guys that I considered for my fifth spot. So I want to frame this as a choice. So, because they all have the same duration of contract. So you have Gorgie Jang, basically $34 million and, and pretty close to dead money because you could, I think you could get a backup center at the minimum that I like better than Gorgie Jang. So then that means he has, you know, that means his value is basically zero because he's at the level of a re- replacement player. Nick Batum makes about $20 million more than Jang over those two years. So basically then the first question is, would you rather have Nick Batum for $10 million a year or would you rather have nothing? And then the second question is, would you rather have Gordon Hayward at 15 million a year for two years or have have nothing? So those are kind of the three options. And I thought that was an interesting thought experiment.
3: Yeah it is. Hayward, I think I would just because maybe there's some hope that he could uh, he's got some upside here. I mean, the NBA much like in the draft, just having an out, having some upside even if it's only a 10% chance of a guy really blowing up is still worth something to me. You know, you have to take a bunch of risks and then hope that some of them work out eventually and Hayward could be that type of risk. Although, even if he gets back to his previous level, he's not going to outperform the remainder of that contract. Um, uh, but still probably Hayward would be there if that's your uh, if that's your experiment. I, I think it's a tough call as it always is on this exercise between just the sheer enormity and length of some of these contracts. Sometimes for players who are actually productive right now, and but what it could do to your franchise in the downside, as opposed to shorter contracts that are just terrible, and you know the guy's never going to produce. You know your your Gorgie Jang versus your you know Kevin Love or something like that. But uh, should should we start with just our number five overall here?
1: Yeah, I'll start because I I posed that question. So I thought Jang's contract was worse than Batum and Hayward. I'd rather have Batum for ten million a year than nothing. so I chose Jang Jang as my fifth worst contract
3: my fifth was Russell Westbrook given all the factors we talked about just a little bit earlier with him but and his value to OKC but just the length those numbers I mean it's, it's so massive that it's just going to be nearly impossible to build a team that's a high-level playoff team with that contract on your books for the last probably three and maybe even four years i mean that could happen as soon as next year they might i mean who knows where they end up this year you know they, they they're looking good now but you know, we felt that way about them last year and they flamed out in the playoffs we could see that happen again I mean, it's not at all a guarantee to me that they get out of the first round especially if they get the 3c and they have to play one of those other really good teams i am so, offend-
1: i'm offended and yeah. outraged that you had russell westbrook on your list he's fourth on (laughs) mind i mean i there are a lot of things that i I love about russell westbrook i've you know I've had a complicated relationship with his game for such a long time but I don't think he's going to age particularly well I think we've already gotten some signs of that this year and I don't think it's fair to give him the benefit of the opportunity of playing with somebody who's better than he is like if you put some of these other players on that list and they could they could be there like if Russell West if Paul George hadn't re-signed the Thunder would be in a very different place this year If, if if Russ you know he did miss some time and everything else and his injury history isn't isn't as concerning to me as some other guys Though the way he plays, you know, means that injuries can happen, and I th- I don't think his game is going to age particularly well. I think that it the expectation that he could come anything close to duplicating what he did in that MVP season, even if there had been no age deterioration, was unlikely. And you know, being an All NBA player and then dropping off from there would have been tough. And I think he's playing it below that level for me this year, even if it's not that far below. And four years, one hundred seventy-one million is a massive, massive commitment. You know, like, think about how that changes your team's books if you are in any other situation. And the Thunder ownership, shockingly, impressively, if you want to call it that, are willing to pay this gigantic luxury tax bill. But if you theoretically were transferring Russell Westbrook onto a team either that had an owner that didn't feel that way or that was just in a different situation, that contract would look like not the worst albatross in the league, but it's it's a gigantic, gigantic contract.
3: And this is not impugning the decision to give him that deal.
1: Not in the slightest.
3: No, I, I understand why that was done. They had to do that to get Paul George to come back. It, it was uh, in their situation i would have probably and i think westbrook has fallen off more this year even than anybody could have anticipated i mean the decline in his jump shot is just crazy last year was was bad and then and remember you, he agreed to that contract before the start of last year he was coming off the mvp season uh and then this year it's been even more vexing the, the free throw shooting going downhill all that but especially the way he plays with the high usage style and just the lack of tools that he has i mean you mentioned he's a good Good passer, but so much of that passing is set up by using his athleticism to draw the defense and open those passing windows. You know, he's not like a Rondo style passer where he's just standing around up top and he's able to pass guys open necessarily. He's got to create that seam first so yeah it, it i think it could get really ugly there my number four was kevin love the fact that he's come back and played as well as he have mutes this a little bit but just the health risk the age uh, the fact that he is not a great fit for a team that's really trying to win at the highest levels and those those are generally the type of teams that trade for a player like love where you you're getting him and you're paying on the front end to get into championship contention i don't think he helps teams at the highest levels that much anymore with his athletic limitations
1: good way of thinking about that is remembering that we had talked about him for years as a potential option for the Denver Nuggets. And now the Denver Nuggets, you know, even though they have uncertainty with Millsap, they have some control over that with the team option. They wouldn't want Kevin Love. I mean, part of that's because Jokic has become an all-NBA guy, potentially a first-team all-NBA guy. But, you know, betting on Love being that guy who's going to move the needle on a team with lofty aspirations is not quite the same thing.
3: Number three for me was Jang, especially just because of how the position that he plays. And that's really huge for me. Just the replacement level for the production that he could provide is pretty high. And, you know, I mean, you could really probably get what he's giving you for the minimum or, or, or very close to it. At least it doesn't go out that long, which is nice to me. I was a little torn that maybe I shouldn't have included him this high, but it's it's pretty bad at, at this point.
1: So I faced a different choice because of the ordering. I had Jane fifth. The, the choice between Wiggins and Love, not only players who are traded for one another, but players that have very similar contracts. Wiggins, one of the arguments in favor of him is that he is incredibly durable. However, that is also one of the arguments against him because he's not that (laughs) good. And Wiggins is also young enough that you could see him improve. He is a physical talent, so skill-related, you know, basketball field-related improvements could make him a meaningful, better player. But why he's my second worst contract in the league is that he's still not a good basketball player. He is a negative value player on the floor. Kevin Love, when he's playing, is absolutely not that. Even though, oh, maybe you play him off the floor in the playoffs or something like that. That is a first-world problem compared to what Andrew Wiggins doesn't bring to the table. He is still, you know, even though he shows signs defensively, he is not a good defender. Offensively, he has some good games, but generally speaking, he takes more shots than a player of his talent level should. And that gets into a whole bunch of problems. I mean, even on a team that isn't super dynamic, there are still better creators, there are better scorers that you'll have on a team with him. And so that makes him a deeply, deeply negative value contract.
3: Yeah, Wiggins... Negative 1.46 PIPM, 11.8 PR, 48% true shooting on 24% usage. And that's one of the most damaging offensive players in the league. And that's well, he's actually shooting the ball maybe better than you'd anticipate from three. And all of the stuff that's not jump shot related, it looks even worse. You know, free throw rate way down. You know, he's basically average free throw rate at, at this point in time. It's just, and he's not making up for it defensively. So this is his age 23 season. I. Yes, there's hope that he could get better, but it seems like he has actually regressed these last two years as he has gotten paid hasn't really worked on his body at all certainly the whispers about how he doesn't love basketball and doesn't work that hard on his game in the offseason there's a lot to be said uh, given his evolution so far uh, for the truth of those rumors and now that he's gotten paid he doesn't really seem like he's going to be particularly motivated maybe maybe by the end of that contract if, as it's about to expire you might get more production because he'll actually like get motivated to get the next contract again but and i don't say that about a lot of players i think most players are pretty intrinsically. Motivated. Motivated, but you know, that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case for Wiggins I actually had Wiggins as my number one uh which I, 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 I I, I, you. I'm I'm reth-
1: I'm I'm actually rethinking that I've had Wiggins in number two and so the thought experiment that I had was would I rather have John wall because those are really the, the two that you're considering would I rather have John wall at 12 and a half million because that is the difference between the two guys wall also as a player option though I think we have a pretty good idea of where that's gonna go and so my logic at the time part, I, 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 at the first part I'm like oh, Oh my God, you know, John Wall basically is not going to play next year. And then when I was there sitting there going is like, would I rather, you know, if, if the player who John Wall has been even as frustrated, frustrating as he has been, i was trying to think of if that guy, even after this year is a $12 million a year player. And my answer is yes. I I think that he is. And so then I guess... So I had Wiggins at two, and now I'm thinking about moving Wiggins to number one because the problem is Wiggins, he doesn't elevate enough, and I think he takes things off the table for a good team. Now... Uh, And and with John Wall, it's crazy because if he, and also if he hadn't had the subsequent injury, the Achilles tear, I definitely would have had him as better than Andrew Wiggins because I thought maybe that was solving some of why Wall was worse this year than he was last year.
3: Well, part of it to me is just, I would almost, I think the Minnesota Timberwolves would be a better team if Andrew Wiggins just didn't play a minute for them this season. Do you agree with that?
1: It's tough because wing depth is still an incredibly important thing in the league. But if, if theoretically, like let's say Josh Okogie was the, the guy making andrew wiggins's money and andrew wiggins was making a kogi money and you were able to switch their like and i mean granted they've both been starting with covington out but like let's say you could do that yeah i would i would rather have that guy but i still think you like wiggins could be a part of a rotation i definitely unambiguously would not want him in a starting five
3: well well but here's the thing i mean if he's if he's gonna have 24 percent usage and 48 percent true shooting and he's not a positive on defense like
1: that's true that's
3: hurting your team
1: it is hurting your team
3: i mean he's taking shots out of the hands of carl anthony towns he's taking shots out of the hands of Derek rose or dario sharich or jeff teague or you know i mean it's really uh robert covington i mean anthony tolliver would probably help them more you know i mean they obviously have to play him uh yeah it's uh i think that's what it is and wall it's very possible when he comes back he could be negative value and him with the fact that we know he's not playing at all next year but I, you know i do think he he could provide potentially at least like some starter level production and maybe wiggins will get better he is younger players do tend to progress even ones who apparently don't work that hard and wall obviously is being paid a lot more so this is a very difficult decision to be sure but i think there's at least a chance that wall could come back and in one of these years or two of these years give you pretty solid production i mean wiggins has just been like a straight up negative this year
1: Uh, okay i want to give you a uh, of what i consider a fun trivia question so i i did a basketball reference search over the last three years so any single year counts players who played over a thousand minutes and had a usage rate over 20 wiggins is substantially past 20 but i wanted to have a little bit of a broader filter here yeah there are nine player seasons with a worse use with the worst true shooting than Wiggins has so far this year. I want to see I there, there are some real highlights on here. I want to see which of see which of them you can guess and I'll I'll rattle through some of them too. So so
3: this is with over 20% usage and over
1: 1000 minutes played.
3: And, and Forty eight percent true shooting or lower.
1: Yeah, they're all they're all forty eight or lower. One of them is actually a tie, but we'll count it.
3: Uh, is Russell Westbrook under forty eight percent true shooting this year?
1: No, he's or at 40, forty.
3: He's at forty nine. Oh, okay. Um. Oh man. And this is stuff. And especially when you consider this is one of the highest offensive environments we've ever seen. Mm-hmm. You know, you're be you're comparing it to guys who are got you know i i'm i'm trying to I'll, I'll
1: I'll right just now. I'll just rattle through them number 9 Josh Jackson's rookie year number okay. 8 De'Aaron Fox's rookie year number 7 Ish Smith Th- uh in 1617 that one surprised me that was the only one i didn't see coming on the list
3: but was that the uh 1617 oh no, six- no 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 that was that was the year after that was in uh the the first year after he signed in detroit that wasn't the yes, year that they so. actually that they actually traded for him no that was the year before I believe. in philly yeah okay
1: number six the legendary emmanuel mudier season last year when he almost ruined the nuggets or you could argue cost them a playoff berth number five tyler ulis's rookie year Number four, Dennis Smith's rookie year. Number three, Ronde Hollis Jefferson this season. Oof. Number two, Trey Lyles in sixteen seventeen. And number one, Kevin Knox. 46 true shooting
3: yeah so it's basically that's basically just all rookies i mean because you you just yeah. you don't see that right i mean he's empowered by this max contract you don't see a guy who's allowed to shoot that much and is that inefficient unless he's just some rookie that they're trying to develop on bad teams and even then i think you know the fact that all those guys are in the last couple of years generally teams won't let guys shoot that much who are that inefficient except you know i think there's more of a bent towards just trying to develop guys uh, on some of these teams in the last couple of years so yeah that's uh it's not good not good at all and he'll probably be better i think in the future you know i mean he's has been better in past years to to just straight up regress like this but
1: well well, that's what i I was going to say like too right Andrew Wiggins' most effective season as a professional was second his year, second right? year. Yeah, yeah, sixteen point five pe or sixteen point five per. Still fifty four true shooting, so below league average. And he was getting to, the, but the big thing then was he was getting to the free throw line a ton. Forty three percent free throw or forty four percent free throw rate, which is fantastic. Still wasn't a good oh. defender, obviously, because he's never been a good defender. But that's immensely concerning that he. When, you know, when's the last time he had like a big dunk? I mean, he only he only has thirty two dunks this season, as of when we're recording this. That even uh, even considering that he has more games to play, that's a lower dunk rate than last year when he and he's this is his age twenty three season. He turned twenty four in late February. And he has,
3: I think, he had some injury concerns earlier in the year uh, with a, I think there was like a quad issue that he had so maybe that's negatively affecting him and, and he'll come around uh, you know I, certainly I was very tempted to put Wall uh, as the highest but also you know Wall has had these injury concerns I almost as a punitive measure I almost think Wiggins kind of deserves it a punitive measure for the organization making just a terrible decision to give a max contract extension when they did
1: there's also an argument in favor of Wall that the the 48 minutes a point guard argument that even if he's not not quite at that level. Theoretically, you could slide him into a reserve role and he could help your team. I mean, that, he 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 could find he's still good at finding looks and, and that would depend on how he looks after the Achilles. But, you know, like you could I think there's more there's more that you can do with a, a bench quality John Wall than with a bench quality Andrew Wiggins.
3: All right. I think we could wrap up here. This was an interesting conversation, though. Uh, thanks so much for listening. And we'll be back to the full schedule starting on Sunday night till then.